The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. It's Brandon. And the Brandon Peters Show is back and ready to attack. Today features a discussion of the 2021 film Moxie. Joining me today, I'm very excited to welcome my friend, director, writer, actor, comedian, a jack of all the trades, jack of all the trades, David Crom Miller. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem. Always good to... I think like during these COVID times, we've kept in touch really well. <laughs> I don't know. We, we have, we have, even though you moved far away from uh, here in, in California, you used to live in California. I did. Um, and that, I, we talk now more than I think we did then. So maybe, maybe I, we I, had I, some many late nights there during the, yes, we did. We did. in the DVD QC days. Yes. Uh, where we used to watch DVDs into the wee hours of the morning. Uh, and write for, reports. Uh, you and I were of the few that could write the official reports and the, send them the, to the clients. The, the hours in Excel spreadsheets. Uh, it's joy. It's joyful. That's what, that's what you want to do. You get out of film school, you go, and I want to do spreadsheets uh, for DVDs of movies that <laughs> I wouldn't really want to watch. But hey, you know, it's painting. It's okay. It, it, was, it was good. It, it sounds good. cool to anyone not doing the job. No, it was, there's fun it, times, but there are. It was, some- it was an amazing job for, especially mm-hmm. for people who are in, you know, into film and for those out there who are starting out or whatever, um, you know, coming out of film school or, or wanting to get into film, there's those jobs still exist at some level. And if you can find them, snag them. That's not a bad way to spend eight hours. Uh, and great networking too, because everybody that's in there is usually someone in the same spot you are. Well, and in our or group, further we had, along, we had an amazing group because we had. Um, oh, you and I, of course, we're amazing. Yep. Uh, but we that's also the had Ron, that's a top. That's yeah. <laughs> a top. One. We also had Maranzio Vance, who's mm-hmm. a comedian, and, and and he and I have done shows together now um, as comics, and then. Um, and we also had um, uh, uh, Scott uh, uh, Scott Mendelson. Scott Mendelson now at Forbes and a, and a big uh, big critic. Yeah, who will not be- review my movie. He will not <laughs> review my movie. He's a conflict of interest or something. But he won't review it. It's okay. I'm not bitter. No. no, 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 no. <laughs> oh yeah. We, I mean, we also had short stints. People like the guy who played one of the not the not flea. Nihilist in uh, Big Lebowski worked for a couple oh. weeks there. <laughs> I don't know if I realized that or not. Yeah, uh, there's there's some uh, different people that would show up here and there. There's a guy when it merged with Testronic Labs. His name was CJ. He ended up getting a pilot that got turned into this like uh, Harper's Island series. And, oh, nice. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah like seen, yeah. yeah, he was the only person from the pilot they kept. They recast the whole thing and kept him. Oh, that's and he was in yeah. he was in Transformers too. We I mean we also we had tons of different people that worked there. It was uh, John Rocha, who's John, a yeah. podcaster in his own right. Yeah, John, Johnny, he um he's been on this show. Yeah, just lots of people, lots of lots of fun. Everybody just talking about movies all day, watching movies all day, complaining about movies all day, knowing stuff about yeah. players. I don't need to see Madagascar again. I no. saw that saw that a lot. That was a high pressure title when yes. it came out. <laughs> There'd always be the ones too that would come back around. Like there was like one of the Harry Potters that I was like, Oh my gosh. And then, like, I watched it in Dutch, and I was like, you know, this is kind of interesting this way. 
So they, that's the thing is movies do come back around. I, mean, I remember I got my start doing the DVD QC thing when I was in film school at SC. What was the, one of the, the first movies that we worked on there in the DVD center, which we were on the Sony lot, which mm-hmm. was neat being on the Sony lot. You know, we, you know, we had a, a limited number of movies that we were uh, putting out first. We had seven titles that Sony put out in the first like eight months or so. Mm-hmm. And they were like Jumanji, People versus Larry Flint, Jerry Maguire, A League of, of, of Their Own. And, you know, Jumanji, on the first few viewings, is a lot of fun. And then you start getting into German and the French and then the thing. And then you're like, ah. Oh. And then eventually it comes back around. And I will say that any movie, if you have to watch it, if you're an American, you watch the movie in a French dub, suddenly, no matter what it is, it's elevated to, like, art. Like, yeah. you know, watch, watch Biodome in French. That is yes. art. <laughs> yes. Definitely. I always like when, uh, like, Star Wars comes out, I change the dub on, like, Yoda to see how they imitate <laughs> The Frank Oz, it's always way off, different. Like, <laughs> that's always an interesting one to do. Switch the dub on Yoda. I got to do that. I haven't done that. That's yeah. funny. There's one language that's like, yeah, I'm like, that's not Yoda. That's not fun. That's no. this creepy ass. <laughs> no. Going back to the beginnings, you grew up in Brazil, am I right? That's correct. Well, that's the right. first uh, about seven, eight years of my life. Yeah. 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 I grew up in, um, in the Amazon jungle uh, in Brazil. Uh, parents were, were missionaries, um, missionaries. Uh, I do the quotes uh, sometimes <laughs> for that because I uh, found out years later, my dad was also doing other things hmm. that, that, that was, uh, I guess we were involved in down there. Well, at least, you know, that's what I understand. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, my, my childhood was part, uh, part Mosquito Coast, part Tom Clancy uh, with a dash of Indiana. Oh, that's right. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, my dad turned out to, to be, uh, to be uh, apparently working for the state department as you do in the late seventies, early eighties. Mm-hmm. And that, I found that out years later though. It was, I didn't know it at the time. At the time I just thought it was normal, you know, living in a jungle. We lived in a, a town called Aruna Pay, which is about a thousand miles uh, away from any major city. And the only way we could get there was either on the river or by small plane uh, into what I believe at the time was kind of like a dirt landing strip situation that's now a proper small airport but it was uh, a thousand miles from uh, from any kind of civilization on the western side near the chile border and uh, it was neat it was a mango farm i lived on I lived on a mango farm and uh, we should take trips up and down the amazon river and it was it was wonderful it certainly fueled my creativity uh, yeah definitely there's nothing else to do because there were no other kids my age it was me and my dog snoopy Oh. And he was a big, he was a big coward. And then my imagination, that was, that was it for for a number of years. So does anyone ever like comment on your imagination? Like he didn't grow up like all of us. Like what, does anyone like picked up on any like thing? Like, then like, here's the thing is like that, you know, my background at, at, you know, in Brazil is what got me into film school. It was, you know, I wrote a, you have to write an essay to get into SC as well as a bunch of other stuff you submit. And, you know, I wrote a, an essay about the last couple of years we lived in a colonial town on the East side of uh, Brazil called Santarém. And it was a, I wrote this little thing about this thing that happened to me when I was about six or seven, I guess it was, probably seven, where my mom and I had walked to the store. And as we were walking back, it was a really hot day, which is it often is on the equator. She had gotten me an ice cream cone and it, I tripped and it fell and I was mm-hmm. sad about it. So I wrote a, you know, I wrote a, oh, I dropped my ice cream cone uh, essay, but it happened to be in Brazil. And, uh, and I guess that that impressed people enough to get me into the, into the film school. But once I got into film school, I got to be honest, like, you know, when I was in the late teens, early 20s, you tell people your background, they get kind of, a, you know, at a certain point, they roll their eyes and like, whatever, I don't care. David's from Brazil. Oh, who cares? You know, and it's like, oh, that story again. And, you know, and sometimes they don't believe it, you know, because it, it doesn't seem plausible to some people, I think. 
but it was certainly a real thing that yeah. happened uh, and got me uh, got me into film school. I mean, my senior film at SC was about it. I did a little, oh. I did a little uh, um, a fictional version of Tom Sawyer Huck Finn story of uh, a missionary boy, and he has a, a best friend who's an, an Amazonian kid, and uh, and then they, the Amazonians want the missionaries out, and a little sort of anti-colonialism story, uh, you know, questioning religion and all this stuff. Uh, and so that was my my senior film at SC. By the way, somebody How'd you pull uh, that off. Like I'm trying to think. Of oh where no, I, I, I love. And... <laughs> oh, and it, and it looks pretty decent too. Yeah. Like um, uh, George Foyt uh, uh, was my DP on it, and he's gone off to do some fun things. We 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 were very clever. Like my my thing, I always tell people. I you know I teach a production class sometimes, and what I always tell people is you know filmmaking is is an illusion. You know all that mm-hmm. matters is what's happening in the frame. Everything outside of the frame doesn't matter. Right. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't want it to be on fire. That would be bad because you have to stand outside the frame when you're directing. But it was in the fire, the frame matters. And what, you know, and that was the thing I think that we pulled off the best on that. It was called Homeland Homestead was the name of the movie. And so we shot in all kinds of places. We shot uh, in Griffith Park in this area that Jurassic Park would end up being shot at as well. In fact, I believe when we were shooting, Jurassic Park was shooting. Uh, okay. And we had to like, I think if I remember correctly, they were just there or were just about to be there when we shot. And then we shot at the Los Angeles Arboretum, where the Fantasy Island used to be shot. And there's a uh, there's actually okay. an exterior Adobe type uh, looks like a mission, and we put a cross on the top of it and, and transformed it a little bit. But then there's all this you know little bit of jungle here and there, so we just be very careful with our angles. There's a waterfall that we had our actor walk across uh, that that's there. Um, and then we shot some stuff at SC, and we're just very clever. Like we had this one part where the boys run out of the uh, forest. And stop and they have a quick bit of dialogue mm-hmm. before running off and it was a pickup shot that you know was a shot that we had pushed and we shot it in this overgrowth area behind one of the buildings at usc that had just some big vegetation and had and about a week later they had trimmed the vegetation and you'd see what was really behind us which was the shrine auditorium oh. i love being clever like that oh right? yeah the no thing about filming it blows me away but that film I, I it was funny here's a funny anecdote one of my classmates was susan levine Who's now Susan Downey, okay. uh, married to Robert Downey Jr., oh. um, and uh, she did not like my movie. She did not <laughs> like Homeland Homestead. She thought that you know we had made this Huck Finn Tom story, uh, you know Sawyer type story, but I ended up casting people who were in their teens. I wanted to cast like 12, 11, you know, a little bit younger, but we just couldn't find actors to work on a student film that were that young. And the couple that did audition were uh, clearly had crazy parents. So uh, that I was like, I'm not putting up with that one. That, that that stage mom that would be horrible and uh so we cast you know slightly older uh teenage boys and she had this comment we were in dailies and she's like david do you do you realize that your film has um has homoerotic undertones i was <laughs> like no it doesn't i was like no they're just they're just they're friends it's not in the script you see it's not in the script they don't they're not they're not having a relationship. They're just, and why erotic? And they're minors, by the way. Where's your mind going there? And I thought it was crazy because like, you know, in Brazil, when I, you know, lived down there, you don't, you don't wear a lot. You, you know, yeah. you often leave your shirt off because it's the equator and it's hot. Okay. So I had some of the, you know, one of the actors would have his shirt off once in a while. And she just, I guess, read into it, but she did not, was not a fan. She was not a fan of Homeland Homestead. It's not on Rotten Tomatoes, so she can't go and <laughs> no. click on But you know, what's funny is, um, you know, speaking of Rotten Tomatoes, or review sites anyway. We um, when Boris and the Bomb was released last year, we got reviewed on Film Threat, and uh, by the same reviewer had who had reviewed Doolittle, and oh. uh, we we scored uh, significantly higher than Doolittle. So I feel oh. a little sense of vindication because that was her film. Take uh, that. So Vengeance. I'm like, hey, 
my little micro budget, you know, action adventure film, you know, beats uh, beat her uh, her huge CGI thing where apparently a dragon has a uh, an accordion taken out of its butt or something. I'll take your word for it. I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, but I hear that's part of it. Apparently, oh. it's a big part of it. If you say so, it'll be so. So the people listening <laughs> to my show who haven't seen Doolittle, that happened. Totally. I'm curious 100%. to watch it just for that. Okay. <laughs> we'll have to check it out, I guess. Speed up. You also around your it was around your USC days when you got the part of Torch on Saved by the Bell, the new class. That's right. Yeah, it was my summer job for yeah. uh, for three years. I got cast. Uh, it was basically an extra, but I you know I got bumped up to occasionally getting to speak and have a character and. They get to do a lot of gags, and I was in on a lot of the gags on the show. But it was—I uh, got cast in '95, the end of my freshman year at USC, and so my my first three years at SC, or I guess my second three years, were always a little complicated because I had to—I'd shot on the show from April until about September, and then I would leave the show and go back to school, and uh, and that was that was hard too because uh, one year they actually offered me a job as a um as a pa and they said hey, you know you want to become a pa and you know i could have gone into the writing side of things and mm-hmm. um and probably stayed and eventually become a staff writer but i had just gotten into the film school and i was like no i gotta go pursue this thing and go to film school but uh yeah i was on the show for three seasons it was amazing it was a wonderful summer job we shot at the nbc studios here in burbank um, they shoot the whole I, season in the summer or just like a good chunk of no it? They, they, we show because we had minors we you know our mm-hmm. main cast with my seasons we had a different cast a lot because it was a new class and they, they often switched out. But we had uh, Richard Lee Jackson, mm-hmm. brothers Jonathan Jackson, uh, and Sarah um, Lancaster, and uh, who else? Uh, uh, Samantha Esteban. And all of them, you know, they were all under 18. They were anywhere from like Sarah was 14 when she joined the show. And then uh, uh, Richard Lee was uh, like 17. So a lot, a lot of them were minors, and you know, which meant that you know it was easier to shoot during the summer because they didn't have school and they could be they could work a little bit longer. Gotcha. So we would we would start shooting in April, and then we would shoot. They would actually shoot all the way through December, but I would leave the show in August uh, because of my like I said, scheduling commitments. So I would I would leave, and, and they would always they'd have me back, and they were nice about it. But the show uh, shot the high school stuff first. So anytime you watched the new class, and I'm assuming this is the same way for the original series too. You know, we were on longer, by the way. Uh, yeah, I did. But, uh, that show did run longer than the original series proper. I, every year after I was off, I was like, "We're still on." Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> I was surprised. I had seen I stopped watching it after I wasn't on it. But uh, we would shoot the high school stuff first, and then uh, in August we would often flip the set and do a, a special release episode. So the mall episodes or the kids would go off on a, um, a, a cruise uh, and they'd have a you know semester at sea, you know, those type of episodes were done mm-hmm. second. So they would shoot the high school first and then the second, which is trippy by the way, because I've been watching the new series and seeing the set for bell reimagined with the new series where you see, you know, the whole school, you know, it's a more practical location than a, right. on the stage. You know, we were a sitcom, so we were a four or five camera, operation you know and had an audience of 14 year old kids watching us yeah which was awesome They're doing live sitcoms wonderful it's so much fun you know but the seeing the new series like suddenly there's something at the other end of the hallway like they have right. the same basic staircase that i spent hours coming down and doing things at and and, and being in and then seeing it now that's it's still there they've replicated it but then they turn the camera around and there's a whole other hallway and, other, and I was like, oh, I didn't even <laughs> yeah. think. I thought that, you know, in my mind, it ended. <laughs> right right, yeah, yeah. 
It was just this one little commons with the lockers, the stairs. The stairs went up, but we don't know where to. We don't know uh, where to. You want to hear a gross thing that's, that was up those stairs? Because we oh, had the same yeah. set from the original series. Right. Like our Max was the original series Max, and um, our high school was the original series high school. Um, behind, so when we're up in that top of the steps before we you know come in, there's, uh, you know, it's a flat. And mm-hmm. at the back of the flat um, is the gum that the actors were chewing before they went on stage and they oh, would take the gum out and it was, you know, Tiffany Amber Theason's and Mark Paul Gosselers and, and Dusty's and, um, and everybody, you know, whoever was chewing it was, and they would autograph it. Um, and then of course they wouldn't always autograph it. It was, it became, it was disgusting. It was gross. Oh, it's, it's not the best. Uh, There's best a food. wall in Seattle. That's like that with all just gum and oh, stuff. And they, like, I think they I, clean it once a year and then the people started again. It's so gross. It's so gross. Uh, but it's fun seeing the max now because that was my, that was my haunts. And I took it over. Right uh, for uh, for a couple seasons, and, and they didn't make you do magic tricks. No, no, they didn't have any <laughs> of that part of the show, which was good because I, I I was uh, I was an okay actor, not great, uh, and I did not know magic. I knew I knew how to deliver fake burgers and fries. Actually, the burgers usually were real for the cats, just very cold because they were uh, they were made in the morning. But yeah, it was it was a great it was a great summer job for three years, and uh, I'm very uh, very happy to have been part of it. Uh, I remember when you told me that first, I was like, that's really cool. People work like, what? I'm like, no, that's a really, that's a better gig than most of you have had that you tell me. Like, (laughs) it didn't pay well. We were an after show, but it was, you know, it was, it was sort of my, you know, I've had multiple film schools. Like there's the USC film school. And then I consider, you know, Bell to be sort of an extension of that Mm -hmm. because, you know, I would hang out at the, uh, in the, in the booth and watch Don Barnhart, the director work. And uh, Don would would go on to be, become a little bit of a mentor of mine. You know, over the years before he passed, he died um, about four years ago, three years ago, I think. But he had done um, Mork and Mindy. He had done Benson. Oh, wow. He had done variety shows with like the Rat Pack. He had this amazing career. And then he did everything, every Say by the Bell from Good Morning, Miss Bliss, all the way to the new class. You know, that's Don Barnhart directing oh, um, wow. every episode uh, until he started doing other things because Peter got a little greedy and bought a whole bunch of shows. And suddenly Don <laughs> had to go direct California Dreams and Malibu, yeah. California. And, um, and the city guys and all these, all these other shows that were on at the same time. Saved by the Bell new class is much cooler than California Dreams because you at least have the title think, of Saved by the Bell in there. And people are like, oh, I know that. Well, California we had Dreams. Justin and, and Dennis, you know. Yeah, Dennis you had original Raskins, cast who played, members, yeah. Who played Mr. Belding. He became a, a, a friend and, and I love him dearly. And, uh, and Dusty, um, in watching the two of them work, Screech and Belding, you know, it's broad comedy. It's silly. It's for mm-hmm. kids. But man, they they put everything in it. They committed to it. And watching people who are, in my opinion, anyway, um, you know, comic uh, geniuses of sorts, sorts, certainly physical comedic genius. There's not that many people who do physical comedy the way they had to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and especially watching Dusty, like um, you know, he's sharp and and he knew how to you know they they turned his character into very much a, a caricature over the years and he embraced it you know he didn't he didn't overly fight it you know he's a good actor and he's, he's got a pretty big range mm-hmm. uh, you know but he would you know show up and, and and pull the face and do the pratfall and and at one point god they had them they had they had dustin and dennis in suits of armor jousting uh, for one episode you know and dennis was in his early 50s i think when i was on the show mm-hmm. and then uh, they also put them one of the episodes of the max that that was fun is they put both of them I think it was both of them in a giant milkshake container and poured a milkshake on top of them and made them as a giant. It was like some <laughs> gag for the school. Uh, right. It wasn't an actual milkshake. It was, it was actually um, 
this is kind of this is kind of grosser. It was um, mashed potatoes, instant mashed potatoes that they that they made a giant batch of that they poured on top of them. Okay. Um, so they weren't they weren't freezing, but but you know that, that's a lot of commitment to comedy there. And it's, right. It's fun to watch. You know. Yeah, I remember Dennis used to be a uh, karaoke regular at uh, was Dimples, Dimples. back yeah, in Dimples Burbank. Here in Burbank. Yeah, Dimples Burbank. Yeah, yeah, I used to see him there a lot. Whenever I go in, I wasn't like there regularly, but he'd be in there like quite frequently every time I'd show up in there. So he's he's a wonderful guy. I owe my career to him. You know, yeah. uh, uh, my first day as Torch, where I got bumped up, I had joined the uh, the show April of '95, and I was basically just a high schooler mm-hmm. on the series. And then a few weeks in. They asked me to audition for the redheaded waiter, and I went to the audition, and it was only me and one other guy who looked like he was about 30-something. <laughs> and I thought, well, I might be getting this. This might be my part. This might be for me. And I was like, oh, shit, I better not fuck this up. And I went in. It was my first real professional audition, and I went in and auditioned for Robin Lippin. Didn't know what I was doing. I was nervous. And it's a tiny office. And her desk mm-hmm. took the whole thing. It was ridiculously comedic, the room. Um, this little lady and this huge desk. And then I got the part. And then it came time to tape. I was going to we rehearse on Thursdays that we shot on Fridays. And the Thursday rehearsal went okay. But I was nervous about um, getting to set the next day. And I didn't have a car. So oh. I was using my, my girlfriend's car at the time, uh, my college girlfriend. And I stayed over at her apartment. And she had one of these alarm clocks where there's like a million buttons on it oh. and little tiny switches. And I, 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 I hit the wrong button and I overslept and I woke up. I was supposed to be, my call time was like eight and I woke up at eight twenty. and um, I called into the stage and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm late. I, I'm, I'll be right there. And, you know, I was living at USC, so I had to you know drive up the freeway, but luckily on Friday mornings, it's actually easy to get to Burbank from SC. Uh, the traffic's mm-hmm. in the, going the other direction. So I got there in 20 minutes and, uh, and got on the stage. And Karen, the uh, AD, pulls me. It's, I just remembered this. Karen, oh my God. Uh, sorry, we talk on Facebook now. We, we've connected. Um, Karen pulled me aside and said, you know, you, you know, they were going to fire you. But Dennis vouched for you. You know, D- Dennis Haskins said, you know, if, if David's late, it has to be for a reason. Uh, I'm sure he'll be here. And uh, so I owe Dennis Haskins my, my entire wow. career for that um because uh he he he, you know he he had faith in me and um and that allowed don where did it come from did you guys talk and stuff like right beforehand or just he's just like here's a young guy let's not i mean there's a little bit of that i mean when you're on the show there's there was about 10 of us that were regular background performers Mm -hmm. and we would and there's a couple of us that were kind of given sometimes a little bit more leadership responsibility and training new people coming on Mm-hmm. And we would get opening crosses. And, and so we'd get a little bit more, you know, attention than people coming in and cycling. And I'd been there for six weeks. And, you know, when you're waiting to go on, you're talking to each other, you know, you become friends, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he just, I don't know, for whatever reason, didn't think I was a complete fuck up. So that was nice. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, so it was just, yeah, he, he vouched for me. He was just, he also looked out for people. It was a pretty mm-hmm. tight group. And, you know, I remember I'd have to be picked up because um, uh, I didn't have a car. And I would hang out. One of the great things is we shot at NBC. I used to hang out behind the backstage of the Tonight Show because there was a break room right behind mm-hmm. the, the door that leads ah. to the stage. So I would, you know, just happen to have to hang out there all the time so I can watch celebrities <laughs> and Jay uh, Leno walk around and stuff. And there was a, 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 a phone, a pay phone there that I would use. I had no cell phone. This is pre-cell phone. Right. So I would call my ride. My well, no, you had the, the Zach Morris phone, of course. Right. Of course. Yes. It was, of course, the Zach Morris phone. And so I would call for my ride and I'd wait there and I'd, you know, you know, stargaze. I almost got hit by Mel Gibson one day. 
because he was driving his truck and like he wasn't looking. But like, you know, I would often be standing outside after I called my ride, waiting for my ride. And one day Dennis pulls up, he's leaving and he's, you know, offered, you know, hey, do you need a ride? You know, and are you okay? Are you all right? He just, he cared about people. And Mm -hmm. and that was the spirit of a lot of the folks, you know, you know, Dusty just passed and that um, what was hard, you know, to, 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 to see happen. You know, and because of the show and some of the things that have happened over the years, you know, there's this there's this mistaken idea of who people are on these shows, and it's never quite what the you know tabloids or what the media you know sees. And the, my experience with all of them was that it was it's a very tight knit group, and and we all cared about each other. You know, and yeah, there were certain moments afterwards that. You know, where like Dusty was trying to reinvent himself and try to shake off the screech persona. So we right. decided to start acting a little differently. But that's not really Dusty. Dusty's a nice, sweet human being who, you know, just honestly wants to be, you know, wants, wants friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I noticed, you know, when I knew him um, was that, you know, that that was very much true about him is, you know, he was one of the first people to introduce himself to, to us and uh, would hang out and talk and, and was just a, a, a nice person who you know took his job very seriously. And yeah, but also was, you know, growing up in the public eye and um, that that's all that Lifetime movie they did. And, you know, it was accurate from my, my experience, <laughs> um, you know, uh, but a lot of the stuff that happened in it, at least from what I could tell anyway, was stuff that I know that happened on the new class. Like there was some schmuck who took advantage of Dustin and uh, became a friend of his, but then Dusty signed for a car for him and all this stuff. Mm. He took real advantage of, of Dustin and. Uh, that guy's mentioned in the in, in that movie. Uh, his name was changed, but um, but it was very much um, very much stuff that had happened. So, you know, it's complicated. But uh, uh, but at the end of the day, that that group is pretty tight. You know, we're we're all still, um, you know, some of us at least are still friends. I, I happen to end up getting to know some of the people from the original series uh, just by happenstance because it's you know, not right. everybody gets to to say that they went to Bayside High. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and, 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 and graduate from from Bayside, you know, go Tigers. Bayside alumni. Speed, uh, going, move on real quick from Saved by the Bell, which I want to check in real quick. Last time we talked, you were on my old show. Well, not well, I was on your show, and then before that, you were on my show, old show. But we, we have a great conversation about Boris and the Bomb, which yes. you can go back to Cult Cinema Cavalcade and listen to that. Uh, it was like 35 minutes about it, but I just like to check in with Boris and the Bomb and see where what it's. I know it's on Tubi now. It's on Tubi and, TV, and we're also now on IMDb TV, which okay. is a brand new thing that Amazon um, has started doing. And what's uh, kind of neat about it is it's a curated content on IMDb TV. So we had to be picked out of all the, the content they could have picked. They, they did choose us as one of their films. Um, and that's nice. So you can watch it now on IMDb TV. It's out there. Uh, and I think we'll be on more streaming services as the year progresses, um, as our distributor, Indie Rights Movies, is putting us out there and, and, and helping uh, get the word out about Boris and the Bomb. But it's doing great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and we're very excited. Our um, our uh, lead actor, Jonathan McCarthy, just shot a couple of days on The Morning Show, uh, season mm-hmm. two. One of our actresses, uh, Leela Ladner, she's a Disney Junior star, and she's a, their first Indian princess. Mira, Mira, Royal Detective, Mira, okay. Royal Detective, and she's Mira, um, and uh, and then um, uh, Parissa uh, Fakri is on uh, SEAL Team uh, and, uh, and is doing great, and Molly Hagan, who's in our film, uh, is mm-hmm. currently in Walker, Texas Ranger, so the cast is doing great and getting out there and um, uh, and having a, having a good a good a good career um, wave happening, which is also good for abortion and mom. So it's going good. 
Awesome. Awesome. And uh, now you're on a new part. Now you're you're documentarian currently. Yeah. You're playing your hands in with uh, Flappers Comedy Club. You're doing Unflappable, the chronicling the history of Flappers. Yeah, chronicling the history and and predominantly focused on this last year in the pandemic Mm -hmm. because I'm a stand-up comic and Flappers is my home club, which is how that happened. And we have been talking with Flappers for a while about doing a narrative web series um, about just, you know, know, the behind the scenes of a comedy club. And there's a lot of crazy Mm -hmm. stories that the owners uh, had shared with us. And so we were actually talking actively with them about that and working towards it. And then the shutdown happened. And I was, uh, in the week the shutdown happened, uh, not only were we talking about doing the narrative series, but I was supposed to shoot uh, one of the owners, his name's Dave Reinitz, I was supposed to shoot his comedy special, I was directed for him and shoot it. But uh, the shutdown happened before that could, you know, before we could shoot, that was on, mm-hmm. it's going to be March 20th and Flappers closed on March uh, 16th. Right. Yeah, and their yeah. last live show is technically March 14th, the Dana Gould uh, uh, headlined. So uh, about a month into it, Josh Snyder and I, who's uh, he's the booker there um, and one of the producers of the doc and also of, of content at Flappers, we're talking and we have been talking about, I'd wanted to do a doc for a while. I mean, I did CNN stuff uh, for a couple of years back in mm-hmm. 2008, 2009 and had covered protests and stuff. And I love documentary filmmaking. Good thing we don't have those anymore, right? Yeah, so there's no protest. The world's, the world's solved. We're, we're, we're post everything. Equality's uh, here. Everything. Yeah, it's great. fine. There's no problems at all. You know, so I, I, you know, doing, you know, I'd done short subject documentaries. This is my first feature doc. And so I just started following them and recording video of them reinventing themselves. I mean, they went from being a brick and mortar comedy club to within a week, they went online with Zoom comedy. They were the first Mm -hmm. big club to do that. They were only the third, I think, set of comedians to do it. And the other two comedians were our flappers regulars, Maria Bamford uh, and Jackie Kayshawn. Then they did, they had, they have an online school that, oh, it was an online before, but now it's online called Flappers University, FU, and I teach a, a right. production course there. And then this, that moved online. And then, you know, they have a restaurant, a pretty big restaurant. Um, they have three performance spaces. So it's a big space. And that place was shut down. And in order to try to keep the lights on and going, they've done everything from uh, they did groceries for the first month of the pandemic. People couldn't oh. find toilet paper. They had toilet paper. So people <laughs> bought toilet paper from them. I know I did. Um, you know, the big industrial size toilet papers too. And, you know, for, for big butts, you know, for big butts. That uh, cannot they, lie. Yeah. Can't, they can't lie. And then they uh, did uh, food, some uh, takeout and food delivery for a little bit. And then they, uh, what really saved them though, is they started feeding seniors in Burbank oh, um, wow. through a program called Great Plates and funded also by the state of California and FEMA. And it feeds seniors and they feed 50 to 60 seniors in Burbank, three meals a day. And uh, seven days a week. Uh, and over the course of the year, one of those seniors ended up becoming my mom because we moved her out from Michigan the mm-hmm. week of the shutdown. Uh, uh, that week, I had to move my mom out. Things, you know, weren't, she needed some help and needed some extra care. And so we moved her out here down the street from where I live. When Flappers got the green light to do the, the, the food delivery, um, after about a couple of months, you know, my mom signed up for it. So now, you know, she's been, so it's been a wonderful thing, you know, that they were able to do for the community. And it's helped them stay, keep the lights on. So, you know, the documentary follows that entire journey of them trying to keep their business from going under. The owner of Flappers, um, uh, Barbara Holiday, there's Barbara Holiday and Dave Reinitz, they co-own it. You know, Barb's house is collateral for the club yeah. because they got an economic development loan from the city of Burbank. And uh, so, you know, the stakes are pretty high for them. Like if, if it doesn't work out, they not only lose their club, but she loses her house. So the documentary really is about that journey. Um, as well as, you know, the state of comedy throughout the, you know, COVID shutdown, 
Yeah. And we've, we've interviewed now over 40 comedians as part of the documentary. We even were considering turning it into a series. We may still do that if there's interest in it, but right now we're just focusing on, on getting the feature done. Uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully they'll get to reopen at some point it's, you know, but with the way this virus is going, who knows, um, hopefully, hopefully knock on wood, they're able to reopen. And, uh, when they do, it'll be, um, it'll, it'll, it'll be a good thing for the community again. And also for comedians who are just dying to get on stage. Right. Uh, well, they don't die to go on stage. Nobody wants to die to go on stage. But I have to say that Flapper's Facebook page is uh, quite, it's pretty exciting for, you know, a comedy club that can't be open and stuff. There's a lot of programming going on on that well, like they, on, they, on a regularly scheduled basis. It's pretty. They still do seven nights of comedy. Yeah. And they're the only club doing it. I mean, the comedy store shut down and uh, Laugh Factory shut down. You know, those other clubs started doing some things outdoors occasionally. Flappers did a um, a drive-in comedy called a Park and Laugh, where they did a they put up a stage and had big comedians, you know, come in and mm-hmm. perform. Um, you know, everyone from Jimmy Dore to um, let's see who else. Uh, um, uh, well, Bill hasn't done it. Bill Burr hasn't performed yet at the drive-in, but uh, uh, but you know, there's a ton of amazing people, and they were thriving before the shutdown. Like 2019 was their biggest mm-hmm. year, and they were starting to do really well. I mean, they're they're you know the regulars that performed there in terms of big names. Um, you know, became a club that, you know, a lot of comedians would work out at while they were prepping for their special. Mm-hmm. So uh, Whitney Cummings is a regular at Flappers and, you know, did shows almost nightly there uh, where she was working on her material for her next special. And same with Bill Burr. Um, Jeff Garland has a weekly or had a weekly uh, show there on, on Sunday nights, um, you know, and you know, Dana Carvey would drop in. Jerry Seinfeld dropped in when he was working on his last special and, and, and took over the club for a night, you know, so they were, they were thriving and doing great. And, you know, so that it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, hopefully they're able to, uh, you know, to pull out of it. Uh, but the doc is about, you know, about them. And then on throughout the doc, you get to learn a little bit about how flappers came to be and who these, um, really interesting and, and positive, uh, people are, you know, they're inspiring. Mm-hmm. They don't give up. And, uh, that's something that, Certainly, I'll be honest, you know, the, having the doc to work on this past year has kept me going and right. allowed me to, to feel some sliver of hope um, throughout all this. Because, you know, having Boris and the Bomb released in January, February of 2020 and the shutdown happened, that screwed up our entire plan for yeah. how the film was going to be received. And even though people are streaming, it still became hard to get the word out and promote it. We were going to do conventions. And yeah, it felt we like it was just taking it. off and then whoosh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we had, and then we were had another show, movie that we were starting to to, to work on and prep and write uh, called One Good Christmas, a Christmas movie, and we've had to put all of that kind of on simmer, you know, and uh, and so the doc really has been the thing that's kept me going, you know, for the last, um, you know, for the last year, and uh, it's been, uh, you know, it, 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 if you're having a hard day, there's nothing better than interviewing a comedian, uh, oh and, sure, and and and, and listening, listening to them and. And some of them have had amazing stories. Kristen Keyes uh, uh, was on a Princess cruise ship performing when the shutdown happened. Uh, and she actually got shut down before the shutdown uh, oh. because they were one of the boats that, you know, got flagged for, for having ah, okay. and then Hal Sparks is a big part of the dock. And Hal was in uh, China the months leading up to the shutdown because he was shooting a, um, a game show that he hosts there. And, uh, and he was in and out of China for several months for the, for the five, six months. You know, so there, so you know, some of them have some amazing stories, you know, about what you know, how they've survived the shutdown, yeah, um, and what the, what they've gone through to just sort of you know keep afloat and uh, and and deal with it too. It's been it's been a crazy year. It's been it's been a nutty year. We we did one of the things that one of the other things uh, 
that I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't mention is we did the show called Wicked Widgets, which we started shooting um, third week of the shutdown because my wife and I's reaction to trauma and stress is usually to do a web series. There you go. Uh, yes. When when we did Ann Boris, the series that Boris and the Bomb is based on, it was during the 2008 um, financial crisis, and we both had gotten laid off. And uh, so we made that series. We did three seasons of it back to back in 2009. And then when this crisis happened, it made sense for us to do the same thing. Right. But we did a, a Zoom sitcom called Wicked Widgets about a magical IT company that accidentally deletes the internet in the middle of the pandemic. And their uh, their uh, Zoom-like stream is the last stream and they have to keep it going. Otherwise, the internet goes away forever. And there, then there's a lot of commentary about what we were all going through at the time and a lot of silliness. Uh, a lot of very, very big silliness happening on Wicked Widgets. Uh, we, we were just having fun. Uh, but we just re-released uh, the first season. We did two seasons of oh, seven episodes. Four, we did four episodes and then we did uh, three more. And we did it all live. We would we treated it like a sitcom. You know, okay. we, we wrote on Mondays. We wrote on a Monday, Tuesday. And then we shot the show Sundays at four o'clock. And uh, we'd actually start shooting at one. We'd shoot the show a couple times. Um, once live on Facebook, once um, off of Facebook. Uh, and it was uh, it was a blast. But we're re-releasing it with uh, sort of finished effects and music. Okay. And, and Special edition. That. Yeah, because it was like a live taping and it was, you know, very raw. Uh, right. So we've gone through and tightened it up and, and added um, because it's magical. And there's a, there's there's actual magical battles that happen in it as are, are crazy. We had uh, Andy Forrest from Parks and Rec is in it. Okay. And, uh, uh, Anthony Q. Farrell, who's a, a showrunner. Uh, with a couple of BAFTAs uh, under his belt uh, for Secret Life of Boys. Uh, he was in it uh, as a performer. He's a friend of ours and a bunch of fun people, people from Boris and the Bomb uh, are in it too. And uh, it was uh, it, between that and, and Unflappable, that's what kept us sane because uh, it kept us mind, our mind off of, you know, the, the stress of the pandemic. Of course. I mean, you got to be like, you can't just sit. I know there's people who are like, how dare you do or, you know, whatever it's like I, I can't just sit and say this sucks all day long you know like or no. just be like you can't it's just you can't you can't do that and i you know i i found things to do i mean you found things to do and you know we made things happen by the way i was in a movie with anthony farrell oh yeah jeremy shot called pool party Oh, okay. I worked on that one a lot. I was like, I remember that guy from that went to went on to work on The Office. I was like, Who? yeah, yeah. He I'm was like, a writer on The Office for yeah. uh, a couple seasons at the end there. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah, Anthony, acting. Yeah, he he acted in that movie. He's funny. He's so funny. He plays um, yeah. Lord Maximus in Wicked Widgets. He's an okay. evil ancient sorcerer. He's very uh, narcissistic and selfish and full of himself. Not at all based on anybody in real life that might have been a president of the United States at the time. Uh, and it was, uh, and he was brilliant in it. He was so much fun. Uh, mm. He committed, he committed fully for us. Uh, he's a good friend. I, I was on his series called Dwelling uh, okay. years ago. He did a web series, uh, and uh, and he and I, uh, he it was his show, and he was in it, um, and I got to play a, a small part in that. So that's how we met, and we become friends and uh, uh, since. And you know, whenever I have an opportunity to work with him or some of those people that are in Wikimedia, I I make an excuse to. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Cause yeah, because it's, uh, it's fun, and he's so funny. Uh, and a good human being too. He's Canadian. You have to be a good human. Being. It's too bad the movie I was in with him. He probably doesn't want to remember. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't want to. Um, but yeah, but no, I I really like your push. You're like we got to make something work during this pandemic. It's very admirable. I really 
enjoyed watching you just like, you know, hey, we have to eat, we have to, we have to, you know, feed our creativity. And I mean, I don't know how many people that listen to the show seen what you've done, but it's impressive. And that the way you push through while still recognizing there's a pandemic going on and, you know, well, being you know, what's funny is, is, you know, at the end of every day, my wife and I, uh, we have a ritual where we sit and we talk about what happened that day with our kid and my mom and, and life. And, you know, we'll go out in our backyard and, and sit in our hammocks and, and, and have a chat. And, and, <laughs> and then at some point we'll inevitably remember, Oh, and there's also the pandemic going on. Like, you know, there's, yeah. Like, why, why do I feel anxious? Oh, that's right. There's a worldwide <laughs> pandemic that had to wear a mask all day uh, when I went to the grocery store and had a panic attack. Um, but, uh, but no, you know, our, we, we keep busy uh, and it's either because we're, you know, people who don't want to give up and, and we find ways of being creative under any circumstance um, or it's, you know, insanity. So I, right, I, yeah. it's one of the two, rather crazy or, or, or creative, but, you know, I guess there's a fine line. Sixteen-year-olds care about. When I was sixteen, all I cared about was smashing the patriarchy and burning it all down. Oh my God! Girls constitute a revolution. Did you hear rankings are already starting? Emma Cunningham's just going to get ranked most bangable for the second year in a row. Kira Pascal for best ass. Caitlin Price will take best rap. It's so nice not to be on anyone's radar. Totally. Can I help you? I don't know. Can you? He's bothering you. He's harassing me. If you use that word, that means I have to do a bunch of stuff. You know that your school is weird, right? Ignore Mitchell. If you keep your head down, we'll move on and bother somebody else. I'm going to keep my head up. Hi. Why have we all accepted it? Like, no one even blinks. Me and my friends protested everything. We made a ton of mistakes. But you're glad you did it all, right? Of course. What are you going to do? Nothing? Whoever wrote Moxie is a badass. You know what's messed up? I got sent home for wearing a tank top. Meanwhile, Jason is constantly shirtless. People refuse to call me by my new name. I don't like being voted best ass. Says to draw hearts and stars on your hands to show support. I would love to know who started Moxie. And who will they go after next? This seems like a women's issue, and I'm going to stay out of it. If you're doing nothing, then you're part of the problem. Noticing someone filming right now, and uh, I have to go to the bathroom so bad. I hate that we are shoved aside. Dismissed. Nobody does anything. Nobody listens to us. Revolution, baby. Moxie is directed by Amy Poehler, written by Tamara Chesna and Dylan Meyer, based on the novel by Jennifer Matthew. And it stars Hadley Robinson, Alicia Pascal Pena, Lauren Tsai, Nico Hiraga, Sydney Park, Sabrina Haskett, Patrick Schwarzenegger. Yes, he's his kid. Angelica Washington, Marcia Gay Harden, Clark Gregg, Ike Barinholtz, and Amy Poehler. Inspired by her mom's rebellious past and a confident new friend, a shy 16-year-old publishes an anonymous zine calling out sexism at her school. So, David, I always have people pick movies. You picked the you had a kind of a trio, but you were like, you know what? Damn it, we're doing Moxie. So why Moxie? Why Moxie? Because, you know, 
this past year, movies have been a sense of comfort for those of us who like movies and the pandemic. And most everybody's had to, you know, be forced to stream stuff. But I, I'll be honest, modern, you know, I, I host a show at Flappers called Talk and Talkies, you know, somewhere where we pick a movie and we talk about it. And a lot of the times it's 80s movies that are comforting. And because, you know, there's a certain uh, optimism, I guess, uh, although I didn't think of it at the time, you know, with 80s films, but modern films, not, not so much optimistic and not always, uh, I'm sorry, not always well done. And when we watched Moxie, it just surprised me because it reminded me of everything I loved about a John Hughes movie, you know, of the 80s mm-hmm. um, with this modern, you know, edge to it. And also there's, there's some social commentary in it. And whenever you can have a comedy that not only makes you feel good because the, the characters are so vibrant and, and the directing is so good, but it, there's also a message underneath that's empowering. You know, I'm a father of, of, a, of a seven-year-old girl. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and when I see a, a film like Moxie, which is very much about women's empowerment and, um, and fighting, um, you know, sort of, uh, I guess the patriarchy, but in this particular case, Patrick Schwarzenegger patriarchy, uh, <laughs> where he plays just this horrible, horrible guy, you know, it, it, it just, it, it reminds me that, you know, I want my daughter to, to have, well, I want her to have Moxie. I right. want her to have, have the, the power to, to speak her own mind and to, and to speak for herself and, and, to, and to be herself, you know, whatever, whoever that ends up being for her. So it's a film that, that spoke to me as a father and uh, of a daughter, as well as, as a filmmaker. And Amy Poehler, you know, I, I, I told my, my wife, Jen, uh, we're writing partners together and, and, and make, you know, all these, all these projects together. And, you know, and I, I told her, I was like, I don't, I would hope Amy stops acting and just focuses on directing because it was so well, well done, so well mm-hmm. executed, so well edited. You watch, you know, indie films, especially coming of age stories. And there's sometimes something that doesn't quite click, you know, or, or something that you go like, okay, it's a good movie, but um, it's lacking part or it's lacking, you know, good cinematography or it's lacking thoughtful directing. And, and this had all of those things, you know, it's, uh, you know, the film changes as you watch it, her, her directing style and, and, and how uh, Hadley, the, the main characters, um, you know, framed in the shot and, and, and how she's lit is, is altered a little bit throughout the movie mm-hmm. as she gains power and, became, and, it's, and finds out who she really is. I, I love that. I love that there was thought that went into it, that it wasn't just, you know, I'm going to execute a comedy with some teenagers and make a, a coming of age story that it was actually an attempt to, to, to take you on a journey uh, with this girl and, and be there with her, you know, so many times in indie film, especially, and I guess it's kind of an indie film, although it's Netflix, you know, if they're indie anymore, um, <laughs> you know, is, uh, you know, is, you know, the, the camera often doesn't have a strong point of view. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it, usually the camera's just there capturing the scene. They have some blocking. The actors I, show it up. comes with digital filmmaking a lot, too. It's a yeah. lot easier to like it used yeah. to be hard as fuck to get a shot. Now they can just filter it and they have post product, you know, like, yeah. And there's a, there's a laziness that's happened in, in some of any film. And I don't know about a laziness, just a, 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 sometimes it's actors becoming directors and, you know, they're not thinking visually. And what I love about Moxie is here you have this black belt comedic actress, Amy Poehler who is just amazing at what she does on a regular basis. And she comes into it directing, I think it's her second feature. Second, yeah. um, and Number she's right two. now directing a documentary, by the way. She uh, has about, a she has a TV movie under her belt too. So that could be yeah. three. I mean, this went to yeah. Netflix. Yeah, that's right. And she's directed a bunch of, you know, a Parks and Rec and, and, and other uh, series. But like, you know, she comes into this and it's, it's visual. The camera has a point of view. The way she opens it with this, she you know, could direct a horror movie. Like, wow. I, I, it was like, amazing. Like that opening scene, I was like, oh my God, this is great. 
Yeah. You know, I didn't expect it, you know, it, you know, where the character's running through the woods and, you know, and she screams, you can't hear her voice. And it's just the, the camera's, you know, uh, following her and it's tense. And you don't know where she's running. And you're like, did I pick the right movie? I thought this was Moxie. And then she wakes up from her dream, like, oh my God, you did it. I didn't, I didn't see this coming. Usually you can see a dream right. sequence coming and you go like, you know, I thought I had picked the wrong movie and I thought this was maybe a serial killer film or something. <laughs> um, and then I'm like, oh no, this is Moxie. This is just where the character and i was like wow that's so visual and so thoughtful and then the whole film holds up as you're mm-hmm. watching it you know so as a filmmaker it's just incredibly satisfying and uh, and then as the story progresses i mean this is a story that's not told you know here we are a couple guys talking about it but you know right it's, yeah two two yeah. white guys talking about but it's yeah. you know it, it, it it's it, it's a it's a story and a point of view that hasn't been told i mean most teen movies are basically movies about a guy stalking a girl, you know, until right. she submits and finally gives in, you know, you, you watch John Hughes movies and they're, you know, I have them up on a pedestal and I love them still, but you know, they're incredibly dated from, you know, uh, they're racist and sexist and, and nine times out of 10, the guy shows up unannounced at the end or wherever mm-hmm. the girl is and holding up a boom box or sitting on a fancy car and 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 it's all about the you know, the girl going oh in this case it wasn't about that no and 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 in fact the 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 little bit of a love story that's in it which is not much of one mm-hmm. um, is a guy we've never really seen before in a teen movie this sensitive you know uh, guy who's you know not hasn't having an agenda is he's part he's a feminist and he and there's a part of the movie where they all draw on their hands stars and hearts as a way of a silent, silent protest because of what mm-hmm. happens to the main character, you know, and he does that too. So like, you know, even the male characters were presented differently in this. And then the female characters were honest and, and, and empowered and, 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 and raw, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a sequence at the end where they all start speaking their truth of what's happened to them, you know? And, you know, I, again, I'm a father of a daughter and I'm also the son of a, as most of us are of, of a woman, of a mom. <laughs> Uh, and I have a sister and, and, and obviously a wife and I'm surrounded by women in my life. And, you know, and I know some of the horror stories that they've had to deal with, the sexism they've faced, the uh, the, the assault and, and and all the things that, that the Moxie gets into. And seeing that story finally told, not just told, but also told in a way that's accessible, that's exciting, that's and that's funny, as well as empowering. Yeah. You don't get that. Usually you get a little bit, you get, you get a very straight drama sometimes. And there's still some guy stalking a girl at some point. In this case, there wasn't any of that. And, and instead you have this empowering movie that at the end of it, you kind of want to go get a, a, a megaphone and go out and march in the streets. You're ready right. to go out and change the world. And I think we need more movies like that. I think we need more movies that make you feel something, not just sad and depressed and angry, but something actionable, something where you can go like, no, I can take this, and now I can go out of the theater or out of my home, and I'm I've been changed a little bit through the experience of watching this movie. Right, and you know it, it doesn't hold its punch back its punch. There's movies that attempt this thing, but they're kind of careful with their punches. And also having Amy Poehler direct, she also can show you like these things don't have to be super serious. They have fun too. They're human beings. They laugh together. They have fun together. They plot together. They enjoy what they're doing. They're not just pissed and and angry. They are pissed, but it's not just like played straight the whole time. And it also isn't afraid to show the flaws of our main character. She goes on a journey starting yeah. kind of flawed, becomes empowered, and takes that power 
to a different level of finding flaws that she needs to once again overcome in the end. It's quite it's, it's quite I love her journey character. and it's it's not one that you've I've seen before really. No. And what I what I like is there's a scene in the beginning which is a new student who comes to the school. And uh, and she's really the catalyst of the film. And she gets mistreated by Patrick Schwarzenegger's character um, where he's bullying her and being condescending. And it's it's and it's pretty harsh how he is. I mean, he spits in her soda and hands it back to her. And it's it's hard. And and, and Hadley's character um, says, you know, meets this girl on the stairwell and they have a conversation. And, and she says, you know, uh, to this new student, um, you know, that, oh, you need to keep your head down. You know that it's he, oh he's just the way he is, and she's making excuses for him. And the and the and the new student, and I forget her name, and you have it in front of you. Um, <laughs> you know, says to her, "I don't want to keep my head down. I want to I want to keep my head up, if that's okay with you." And you know, and it's one of those moments where she realizes, "Oh, I'm part of the problem. I've been enabling this behavior at some level by my own silence and by this need to just, oh no, I'm I'm, I'm not worthy. I can't I can't speak up." And speak my own truth, um, uh, you know, and uh, and then she changes throughout the film, and, and she becomes this this incredible mm-hmm. character that's leading a revolution at her school uh, through the use of a um, of a zine, of a, right. uh, of, of, a of an underground new, uh, school newspaper uh, where she hides her identity, and it's um, and it's just it's just it's 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 wonderful to see a film that makes you feel not only just there's like, there's some hope that people maybe, maybe people will find, because, you know, we're, we all struggle with that. We all want to kind of give in to the pressure of, of just going along with the flow. And we're in an era now. Because it's easier. And right. Yeah. Where we can't do that. You can't do that anymore. You have to, you have to start standing up for what you believe in and you have to go march. You have to go tell people what you feel and, and start taking your power because you, you, you've earned it, you know, and just by being a human being and in women, especially, you know, the me too era. I think this movie is, is incredibly important because I, I don't want my daughter to have to go through what my sister went through or my mom went through mm-hmm. or, or other uh, people, you know, who have, struggled or gone through the me too thing. I know people in Hollywood who have been me too, you know, who've not been me too, but who have been, you know, um, on the receiving end of, of male patriarchy and, and in a very real kind of disturbing way. Um, I could tell stories I could tell you, but I won't, you know, it's, uh, guys, I can't, it's their story, (laughs) not mine to tell, um, you know, and it's, it's, and it's important to have movies like this that can tell the younger generation, you know, Hey, you can do this. You can, you can speak for yourself. And then also telling people of our generation, you know, it's okay to allow this to happen. It's okay to start talking about this. You don't have to keep your head down. In fact, right. you, should, you, should, you should hold it up. When I found, I mean, I, I hate to be, you know, white guy going, well, I can relate to this movie as well. But there was some genuine authenticity to uh, the portrayal of how this was handled at the school to me a lot. Because I... I I went to a Midwest school, uh, middle high school in the nineties and, um, small school and believe it or not, David wanting to be a movie maker back then, uh, was not cool. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, and I think it was in California. No, it wasn't a seen as a real thing or a career. And so I, I got picked on and bullied just for my interests a lot. And because I wasn't with some cool click kids, it was not the cool one. And uh, there were many a jack offs in my grade, and I would try to people would try to have conversations with the people, the school teachers, officials, and they would say these things like exactly like the Marsha Gay Harden principal was. Like I had flashbacks to my own encounters 
and and things like that and and the way the teachers are just kind of like hey, let's just let's get through the day and then we're done and then we just ignore and uh, like there were kids that did like expulsionary offenses like to me to others to other things and they got to slide by because maybe their parents were on a booster club or something we had a kid he like he was a complete piece of garbage treating people like crap harassment he stole like the teacher's edition of a math book one of our math books and like threw it in the river and bragged about it people and then it got word got around of course to the principals and stuff nothing happened yeah nothing like he ruined like we couldn't take our tests like we couldn't you know cool you got a math test going but like really like you're gone but no he was still there i graduated with him like um, just stuff like that all the time, just physical bullying, mental bullying. Like I, I dyed my hair blonde when I was like a sophomore, went on AOL instant messenger, some rando name that I didn't know. Probably some kid from high school was like, Hey, your hair looks like shit. Did it on like just saying mean things to me all the time. And just, yeah. I just couldn't go about my day, do my own thing. But because it was different, I'd be bullied. There were other kids probably got much worse than me. I probably got away with, I don't know, whatever at my school. Cause I was, you know, white male, whatever. But, um, I even got, it was weird because there was one time, hate to bring up my high school through all this, but like I got, it works through your trauma, works through it, works through it. Me, this other guy and these other two kids who were probably on the, like the good kids squad, we got reported for like bullying someone or something. And we were all like, what, what did we, we, what we're like, who is this? Like, we can't tell. It's a I'm like, no, we want to apologize. We didn't feel really bad. Like it was like the wrong kids to do that. I can't <laughs> imagine the other end of it with those a-holes being like, I do nothing. But we're all like, can we, can we, can we write them a letter that you can give to them to say, we're like, we apologize. We, we didn't mean whatever we like. We had no idea who it was or what we did, but we like, can we apologize to this person somehow? And they're like, no, we just need to warn you. I'm like, let us, we feel bad. We do not mean I had, I had a similar experience and you know, I, I got bullied quite a bit um, mm-hmm. in elementary school and into high school. Oh, there's actually, there's, there's two fun, fun stories, I guess, to tell. Like when I was in elementary school in junior high in Texas, this was after Brazil, you know, there's this one guy named Steven. He would um, harass me and stop me on the way to and from school. Mm-hmm. Um, and would and we sit behind me in class, he'd flick my ear the whole time and I'd get wedgies and all the things that you get that, you know, that, that screech what we had to go through and say by the bell that was happening to me. Um, in real life. And I remember one day I took revenge on him. He was walking down the aisle in my science class. And he had never, I was afraid to mention anything and he wasn't getting in trouble for it. And I had been flicking me and I just was upset and angry. And I I sucker punched him as he walked past me. Right. And for whatever reason, right then, of course, the teacher notices and we both got sent to the principal's office. And I'm like, really? I mean, I'm standing up for myself, but okay. And, but he and I corroborated our stories on the way to the principal's office because neither of us wanted to get in trouble. Then we became friends after that, and he stopped bullying me. He also, you know, I think realized that I, you know, was capable of possibly hitting back. Right. Um, and then in, in high school, you know, I, I, you mentioned that being cool, you know, being a, 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 into film wasn't cool. I was in the theater department at, at Escondido High here in, in Southern California, is where I finished school, and I was also a wrestler. And uh, those two things were fodder for some people to really love to make fun of me and as i would walk across the campus and it was an outdoor california school so you're outside as you're walking um and as i was walking almost every day this one guy his name was chris would scream at me from the quad you know hey flamer 
And they would call me flamer, um, a homosexual uh, slur, and and just bully me and, and tease me and, and in front of everybody. And and it was devastating. They would pick on this other kid too, who had special needs uh, and, you know, and, and put signs on his back. And this kid, he, they never got in trouble. There was never, it's never anything. My only revenge with Chris though was, you know, he called me flamer. And then a couple of years later, I was on Saved by the Bell playing Torch. So I was like, well, I think that worked out for me. Uh, the red hair uh, and uh, there you go uh, in the name, but um, but yeah, but no, there's always the people like, well, we we become stronger for that, and like, no, no, you fucking don't. It doesn't have to be that way. Just because you or your parents went through things that way doesn't mean it has to be. Like, it's yeah, yeah, it's, it's no, it's uh, it's it, it doesn't always make you sure. It makes you stronger, but it also mm-hmm. uh, you know gets expensive in therapy. You know, but you yeah. just uh, you want to you don't want that experience for right. your kid. But yeah, Moxie pushes that boundary and says, no, it doesn't. And yeah, they get, they really cleverly builds and builds. I, I do like, so it also plays on expectations with us having seen these high school movies because we talked yeah. about character of Seth, the boyfriend character with the drawing that draws the stars and stuff. Did you kind of feel the first time you saw this movie like, there's gonna be something up with him, right? Yes, there's no, gonna I totally be something thought up with him, and I thought nothing. he was doing something horrible, and and then and then no, no, he's he's okay. He's not okay. to give that away to people, but it's true, um, you know. And I, yeah, I, I felt that. I was like, oh no, they're totally setting him up. He's mm-hmm. gonna do something horrible. He's gonna become like Patrick's, you know, Schwarzenegger's character. Well, I'm sure the nice guy. I'm sure Patrick Schwarzenegger's nice guy. Um, but uh, but no, it ends up becoming just this a version of a of a guy that exists is real. Uh, but doesn't really ever get to have a movie made about them, and right. uh, and don't and it doesn't ever get to be represented, you know. And it was, uh, it, it, I lo- I love that character because yeah, mm-hmm. I I also thought that something was going to happen, and then you, you've you've known it's too good up, to be true <laughs> that type thing he ends and, up being okay. You know? And it's actually uh, better for Vivian's arc too because she doesn't need that as a springboard. She doesn't need that as a challenge. She's fighting herself through this movie and becoming herself yeah that would be a crutch and then or based upon the actions of a male she became who she was this allows her to just be herself and that's he's a a passive character um Mm -hmm. you know in in terms of like he's not it's not the the love interest part of the story is just there because they're high school students Mm -hmm. and that's a natural part of being that age um like you said it's not the catalyst for her she's not trying to impress him or or live up to some expectation he has of her right you know she's trying to live up to the expectation of what she has for herself mm-hmm. um and uh and also i think a little bit inspired by her mother uh, amy poehler's character um and, and obviously inspired very much by the women around her right that are um uh, that, that are that are part of in fact one of the um i remember now one of the other actresses uh, in the film is a transgender actress um who's also on say by the bell the new say by the bell and that's part of this this group of, of, of women or uh, teenage women who are protesting at the school and, and trying to change the school's behavior and get Marsha Gay Harden's character to take them seriously. Is there anybody better at playing people you like to hate than Marsha Gay Harden? Like, she's, she's so, so oh my good. gosh, she's so bad and good at the same time. She's so, oh, and it broke my heart. I'm like, no, why are you? Oh, <laughs> I was like, no, you have to take her seriously. You have to listen. You have to, oh no, she just doesn't want the paperwork. Right. And they have to ruffle the feathers of the rich family that, that I guess this character was part of. So I remember, like, I guess his family was like some significant family in the community, mm-hmm. uh, which is always the case. Yeah, 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 it always is the case. On the other side, you have Ike Barinholtz's teacher that just doesn't like conflict when he's videotaped and he's like, um, right now I don't want to talk. Or you... I love his character because I thought 
you know, she, you know, Annie Poehler's, you know, plays with the expectations of these characters, mm-hmm. especially the male characters in the thing, in, in the film, you know, there are like, like the, the boyfriend guy, the teacher, when you first meet him, you're like, oh, this is just another phoning it in, doesn't really want to be there. Is a, maybe a slacker, isn't really, and then, then you, he plays you know, open like, mic on the weekends at the coffee. Yeah, right. Time. Exactly. You know, but, but he defies your expectations because by the end of the film, you realize, oh no, he really is on their side. He's just feeling constrained by the system. Um, he doesn't know how to do he it. Doesn't just, know how. He's afraid he how to, to challenge. It. That's yeah. Yeah, he doesn't know how to help. He doesn't know how to be an ally. He only knows how not to maybe get sued. <laughs> right. um, he's too uh, worried about uh, pleasing everyone, and uh, yeah. But when they walk out at one point, I love that scene, and 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 it just redeems his character and makes you feel that there is hope. You know that it's not just. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the things. You know, when you look at say the Me Too. Uh, you know, movement and 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 where we are in, and not just me too, but also with uh, you know other you know Black Lives Matter and and, and people trying to fight for their rights right now, mm-hmm. is you, you realize that there there are allies out there uh, for those communities, and they have to learn to speak up and do their part as well. But it's not an us versus them. You know, it's it's more of a we. Yeah. It's more of, of people you know finding a way of working together and. You know, just because it's in this Moxie's case, it's a, you know, um, about women empowerment and and, and and feminism, I guess, but also fighting just really horrible behavior by men. Even if you're a guy in that particular case, the teacher, you can help too. You can be a part of it. You don't have to sit on the sidelines. And uh, and and the people who are fighting it, they're not alone. They have allies that are that maybe aren't going through their experience that they're having, but they certainly sympathize with it and want to be a part of of of, of being part of the solution. Uh, rather than the problem, and also he's just very funny in the film and, uh, and endearing uh, uh, as uh, as the film progresses, and, uh, and, and you realize that he's not a complete schmuck, right? Uh, a complete schmuck, which was refreshing. You know, it's refreshing <laughs> to see that. Yeah, I, I think this film very like almost educational in a way. It feels like it, like a fun. You should all gather around, show people this, to show what you can do to invoke change, how other people are feeling about the other side of an issue or maybe oh man i am a fucking asshole you know like that type of thing um because i think the details are specific and modern but the story itself sadly timeless sadly timeless right now and and yeah and and i think that's the power of a good movie Mm -hmm. you know for me uh, you know i I was i was giving notes to to somebody recently and i was mentioning that you know like the boris and the bomb a whole bunch of our own lives are, are in the movie even though it's a silly caper is when you make a movie you need to have a lot in it you know you need to have you know layers you know to the story and some of those layers need to be deeply personal to you as a filmmaker mm-hmm. so that you have something that's that's being expressed through it it doesn't mean you have to hit people on the head with it but you want to have uh more than just the the, the apparent story you want to you, you and then that what that does is it allows you not to have a movie that's not only entertaining and enjoyable but then you you know, like with Moxie, you walk out of it going, "Hey, I'm ready to go hit the streets. Let's go find right. Let's go get some signs made and and and, and protest. Let's go change the world." And that's the best kind of movie, you know, where you, where you feel empowered as you walk out, rather than. I mean, lately, man, I got to be honest. Like my wife and I, we're focused on making, you know, for our narrative stuff. We're trying to do stuff that's positive because there's just like so many movies that are out. It's just depressing, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 they just they 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 drag you down without giving you a path out of, out of the depression. You know, I had a, I had a, yeah. a writing teacher in school and uh, uh, you know, he said, 
you know, you can take your audience into hell, but you can't leave them there. You have to, you have to let them have a way out by the end of the end credits. And so many movies, when they do speak to an issue, only speak to the issue and, and they don't, they don't give you as an audience a way of, of being able to do something afterwards or feeling empowered or good about your experience. You just leave depressed and confused. And that's not, you can't get a lot of change to happen when you're just depressed and confused. You know, you got to be given something actionable, like with Moxie, you know, is to stop being, you know, so don't, you know, have, find your voice, say what's happening, tell people and, 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 and own who you are, um, not who people think you should be. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent point. No, I just hope Amy Poehler keeps directing. Uh, yeah. it, it blew me away. And we need filmmakers like that. We need storytellers yeah. who, are, who are not just trying to get a point across, but also, uh, damn, knows knows how to do it. And uh, there's not a lot of directors, in my opinion, that you are can tell able the ones work. that are are watching while they're on the shows and stuff like that that are yeah. paying it or you know checking their projects. Like, wait, who is she worked with in film now? Like, who is she? Well, it's just you know, it's a visual medium, and in, in a director, you have to be able to tell whatever story you're telling, you know, visually as well as executing the script. And so many mm-hmm. times, with with a certain type of a genre, especially. You know, people are executing the story. They're not, they're not expressing the story. You know, right. um, they're not letting it filter through them. And she could do that. And that's, you know, she's a comedic performer, so she understands rhythm and and all of that, um, as well as being just amazingly visual and and strong. Her camera has a point of view. Yeah, no, that's definitely definitely a strong point. And I think also the it's got a great young cast in it as well. And especially the one you mentioned earlier, uh, Lucy, played by Alicia Pascal Pena, who's the you know spark plug for this yeah. whole thing. She's a star waiting to bust out. Like she's got so really good, good presence so good. and really commanding. Really helps with Vivian and her pair up yin and yang a bit quite a, quite a bit well. It makes it really tick. Definitely, uh, definitely check out my. And if you have Netflix. You can watch it right now, or yeah, after go, go, we're done go, talking. Yeah, right after we're done talking, go watch it. it you, you'll feel better. You'll feel better about life at, at the end of it. Um, right. After you realize some things that maybe you were ignoring, um, but uh, but at the end of it, you'll you'll feel like you 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 need to go out there and and uh, and help change the world. And if not, go look in the mirror for a bit and think about yourself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't feel that. What else? This is where we just kind of talk about anything we may have recently read, watched, listened to, wrote, produced, put out in the world, whatever you want to say. So, David, what else? What else? Uh, you know, um, what else? Well, you know, watching movies is a, is a big part of my life. I guess what else is, uh, you know, throughout the past pandemic, one of the things that I've gotten into again uh, that has been kind of kind of cool is uh, is, vi- is video games, is video gaming. Uh, and throughout the pandemic, I've often um, found myself, you know, you're stuck inside, you can't go anywhere, or if you go someplace, it's the same three places that you feel are quarantined and safe and, you know, mm-hmm. not filled with a deadly virus. And I, you know, one of the things I've done over the last year is to escape that when I can't escape in something I'm writing or doing uh, is uh, I played Red Dead Redemption uh, okay. 2 uh, and, uh, and, and I had to go out and spend some time in the prairie and uh, and just enjoy <laughs> Enjoy the great outdoors inside. And I like that. And what's awesome about that is um, 
you know, or about, about kind of using video games as an escape is my daughter. So she's, you know, she's been homeschooled now for the year and stuck inside zooming. And the only way she's been able to have play dates with her friends is by playing online computer games and they'll go, they'll play Roblox together and, and, and play all these, you know, different weird games that Roblox has. Uh, and it's, uh, and it's, uh, you know, that's fun. It's a nice way of, of, of escaping and, and feeling like you're doing, going somewhere when you still haven't, you're just, right. in the, and I think that's the future. I think we're, you know, once they figure out the holodeck part of it, um, I think it's game over. I think it's pandemic all the time and we'll just stay inside uh, and be okay. Uh, but, Does your daughter uh, play uh, Piggy on Roblox? Yeah. That's my kids are hooked on that. It's, uh, it's disturbing. Um, <laughs> you know, she was, you know, she was, she showed it to me. I play with her sometimes and, uh, and it's disturbing when your daughter uh, is piggy and uh, has been picked as piggy and suddenly stabs you in the neck with a knife. You're like, well, things have changed since I was a kid. Family fun uh, night. Yeah. yeah. We play among us too. We enjoy okay. that. Um, I, I enjoy that game quite a bit, uh, but yeah, it's just, just disturbing. I did uh, one of my favorite memories of recent uh, time uh, was I was playing Roblox with her and there's this game called Brookhaven, which is, um, okay. I don't even know if there's a plot, but I think there is, but it's like a town set up and, um, what was Brookhaven? No, it was Adopt Me. It was Adopt Me. It was the name of the game. My daughter. And, I think uh, my daughter plays that one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got a big, you know, there's a town and you trade stuff. And I wanted to treat her. So I bought her a car. Oh. I bought her a pink Jeep in, in this game. I think it cost me like, you know, two bucks in right. real life, which is still weird to spend money on a digital fake thing. And yeah. I get in the car and I'm That's like, That's a whole well, other conversation. I know, right? <laughs> and I'm in the car with my daughter and uh, it's this nice pink Jeep that she picked out. And I'm treating her and I'm feeling kind of like a cool dad. And, you know, and I'm in the game and I virtually look over to her and I'm like, well, I'm riding in the car with my daughter, you know, and she doesn't yeah. have a license yet. And of course, she immediately drives it off a bridge into the river. So that went well. Mm. I thought that went well. Um, luckily, there's no consequence in Roblox. Uh, so the car was salvageable. But clearly, she, she wasn't quite ready to drive in, uh, even virtually. Uh, that's fun. Uh, that's That's been keeping us sane. Uh, when other things have failed is, uh, is, is escaping into the digital world uh, a little bit and, and having a sense of at least being able to go somewhere. I mean, you know, my, my daughter, I, I've at least had to go to my mom's to take care of her. I go to flappers to shoot. Yeah. Um, you know, go to the grocery store. My, my daughter's basically stuck here uh, until this past week where she finally went back to school for a couple days a week. Um, you know, and, and there are back other the kids world. in the world, dad. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. But uh, yeah, what else? You know, video games. I, I, what else? That's what I've been doing when I'm not when I'm not making movies and, and silly TV shows and working on a doc is uh, is escaping into the digital world. Awesome, awesome. All right, my what else is? I started watching. I'm only three, and I know there's four. It'll be five five by the time this post. But uh, the Made for Love on HBO Max. Okay, um, it's got Kristen Milotti in it. She's like the centerpiece of it, and Ray Romano, uh, Ioni Sky, and Billy Magnuson. It's about this like inventor guy that lives in this dome thing. Oh, okay. It's not like he's it's like when you're in it it feels like you're really outside in some sort of area or whatnot and he's trying to make this perfect pairing couple thing and uh like she they like study every like he's she's his wife Melody plays a wife and like she gets this like chip in her that he can monitor everything oh, of her and okay, so yeah. like it's it's kind of parallels between her escaping from that dome and yeah, running off sure and thing. how it got to be while she or how it was when she was in the dome and it's 
just yeah kind of really interesting like he's trying to monitor everything when she was living in there like testing everything to make them perfect pairing like uh like how well she does during like different sex things and has to be like sounds terrifying it is this sounds terrifying this is not a comedy is it right this is like it's it's more it's more um uh, thriller sci-fi but it has some comedic touches to it but it's pretty it's pretty interesting it's a nice little show i'm really i'm really big fan of the hbo max that might be the one of uh, the streaming services that speaks to me like uh i think their their movie catalogs by far the best because it's got the warner brothers stuff the uh, criterion yeah. things so um and I've friends been, you know yes friends uh doctor who modern doctor who yeah modern yeah 2005 and on yeah yeah uh, but it's i mean I've, I've liked a lot of their shows their movie i mean you get a lot of new movies from the theaters i'm not ready to go back to the theaters yet did so you gotta, did you watch justice league i did watch the justice league i did what'd you think of the uh, what'd you think of the uh, of the first season <laughs> first yeah. i mean I, I i enjoy i mean i was in the cover of my head like i i kind of i kind of enjoyed it quite a bit i thought it was a marked improvement a nice thing i'm not I, there's a lot of fat on it i'm not gonna lie there's a, it's very slow fat though it's very slow oh there's so motion I, there's, fat. if there's slow motion was taken out of the movie it's probably a half hour shorter like if it was yeah. at regular speed half hour, no i think it's an hour movie without the slow motion i mean movie? that thing okay. Oh my God. I, I, you know, it's funny. It's like, wow, I can see every frame of this moment. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, I go to the bathroom, I come back. I'm like, Oh, it's still going. It, flash is still, he's so fast. He's slow. I, I, I'm not afraid. Like, I like the, that they're not stuff like that. They're not going for like, Oh, let's be Marvel. They kind of do their own thing. So you get different clearly. takes and stuff. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> but I think Zack Snyder is like, I think he's, he's definitely got talent. He's got vision but I, and I think he likes a lot of cool things, but I don't think he understands why he likes those cool things. Yeah, you know, no. like I think he, like he's like, oh, I'm gonna, oh, put it in black and white. I'm like, really? I don't think he understand why cool things that were in black and white were in black or like, I don't just. I, it's not my choice of how I would go about telling those stories. Yeah, uh, but I did appreciate the sort of some of the visual mastery he was doing. Yeah, um, you know, my, my my only criticisms of the movie, aside from the fact that it's incredibly slow and there's not much humor, and also Batman looks like he has to poo the whole time. He's just always he's so stiff. They need to build that suit better for these poor actors. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it is I I hated the the this, and I'm tired of this particular trope and in modern um, superhero movies and big budget films is the, the, the bad CG villain. You know, I thought Steppenwolf was better than the, the other version. Oh yeah. No, uh, he, he at least had a story. Had a like, yeah. they, they had stakes. It felt like they were building. So like, it really worked. Like it, it earned, somewhere. It earned the, the finale. Like I was really into that finale, but, but the, but the CG, I hate, I hate it on, on DC films. I don't know if it's, if it's just, I don't know what it is, but it's just they they don't and, and Marvel has some problems too, I think. But oh yeah, WandaVision you know. ended with two people throwing glow beams in space yeah, or well in the sky wires, at each other. Yeah. yeah so yeah, and it's and, and I get sometimes I enjoy it and it mm-hmm. may be the right thing for that character. And those comic book superheroes, but you know, you go like, Oh, look, it's another beam of light into the sky. Oh, look, it's another giant CG uh, ang- you know, villain that the heroes have to all and it's just like can you come up with something else well i mean wonder um, woman 1984 kind of did and people didn't like it like it, we're you know <laughs> trying to verbally you know her in the max lord finale was not yeah, punching that, that it out felt like that I felt i i, I i'm just saying that one tried something else <laughs> I, I, I like parts of that movie but like yeah. that part of it i was like you have wonder woman she's sitting on the floor 
and it's a weird dialogue scene mm-hmm. and he's standing in a doctor who set and it just, it felt like it was felt like a different movie, you know, at the, suddenly yeah. at that point, rather than an active, you know, character saving the day with her whip and her things and all this, you know, she's just going to like, it was like, Oh, you have to love or whatever. And it's just, it felt kind of like a weak choice for that character in that moment. Fair. And Fair. I feel like they have, they struggle in those third acts, especially DC to, to, to get, you know, yeah, you want. And I, I like Shazam's. I did. I, that was that's probably Fun. my favorite of the DCs. It. They had yeah. a lot of humor to throw. I took those tropes and made jokes of them. So I was very much into that. Uh, but yeah, it always it seems no matter your DC or Marvel, it's like well, the call up the CG team for this final battle, and then a giant beam of light into the sky at some point has to happen. <laughs> it's got to be a giant beam of light into the sky. It's like it's either it's either a villain coming to take over the Earth, or it's the best car sale ever. In downtown LA or downtown uh, Gotham, right. you know, uh, or a movie premiere in Gotham, I guess maybe, maybe it's what. Yeah, it it's not not like the old days when you know Batman and and the Joker would harass each other in a bell tower, and it wasn't the world wasn't ending. It was so I like that stuff, but so a little bit of Justice League there. So um, that'll wrap us up for today, David. Thank you for making your debut here. It's always a pleasure to catch up, and you, you also promoted this show when it dropped. So when it debuted and I, like my launch day didn't really feel like a launch day till i went on uh talking talkies it felt like okay we're here now you know because you throw stuff out in the ether and it's like and then like after i did your show then the feedback started coming it felt like real so appreciate you nice. well, well, glad. Well, it, was, it was great to have you on uh we, we love doing that show and it's a lot of fun yes definitely so uh where can people keep up with your happenings around the uh interwebs and socials Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at DP Cronmiller or on Instagram. Um, also, uh, Fish Eyed Lindsay is our production company uh, that we do Boris and the Bomb and Flappable and Wicked Widgets through. And we have a Facebook page you can follow and, uh, and a YouTube channel that uh, is, is a little anemic because we've we only recently started putting stuff on there. <laughs> so if you get to that channel, please subscribe. Although I think YouTube might be a, a dying art. And, uh, uh, and I'm all over Facebook, unfortunately, because it's the pandemic and that's the only way I get to see people. Gotcha. All right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Written work on whysoblue.com. There's more from the Brandon Peters Show this week. But until then, always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetersshow.com. show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.
Well, Lucy, since you did the summer reading, I'm going to ask you the first question that we apparently have to ask about every work of art now, no matter what it's about or what time period it was created. How are women portrayed? Well, I think the real question is, why are we still reading this book? It's written by some rich white guy, about some rich white guy. And I guess we're supposed to feel bad for him because he's obsessed with the only girl he can't have. I mean, if the point is to learn about the American dream, we should be reading about immigrants or the working class or black mothers or at least someone who doesn't already have a mansion. 